Well, good morning, Oakwood family. We are going to complete this series that we started last week today, just a little two-part series called Intervention. And the whole thought behind this is when are we called by God to intervene in each other's lives? When are we going to have an intervention? I know uh, it's kind of a funny thing because if you uh, watch television shows or movies and someone's having an intervention, it's this big thing and this group of people go to this person and try to intervene. And, And in a way, that's kind of what we're called to do as Christians, but there's also a certain pattern. There's a certain way that God wants us to intervene in each other's lives. And that's what we're talking about. Uh, last week, we talked about the what and the why of intervention. What, what is it exactly and why do we do it? Why are we called to do it? And this week, we're going to be talking about the how. Because I find that many times Christians will say, yes, I agree. Yes, we're supposed to do that. Yes, it's clear in Scripture. We're supposed to obey. Yes, but how? And it's the how that gets fuzzy. It's the how that maybe keeps us on the sideline. It's the how that maybe um, makes us not want to engage in someone else's life. And so we're going to be talking about that today. And I think this is one of those uh, messages that you're going to be able to look back on um, and, and, and refer to because I think at some point in your life, all of us as Christians are going to be called upon to intervene in someone's life when we see them going astray. And so let's remember the heart behind it, too, of why we do this and why God wants us to do this. I, I, I was thinking about this this week, and a great way to think about it, too, is that it's a family responsibility. Think about your immediate family, okay? Wife, husband, kids. If someone in your family starts to go astray, maybe you're really tight with your aunts and uncles and maybe your grandpa and grandma, but if someone in your family starts to head down this path of destruction and you know, you know, they are headed down a path that's going to lead to nothing good, only pain, heartache, sorrow, it's going to be horrible. Most of us, because we love them, and all of our reasonableists would say, I'm going to say something. I'm going to say something before they totally mess up their life, before they lose their marriage, before they lose their kids, before they get in in the law enforcement involved, I'm going to intervene. I'm going to say something. How much more in God's family, when he directly tells us to intervene in one another's lives, should we have, maybe you would say the guts, or maybe it's the faith to do what God has asked you to do. And to say something when you're tempted, to say nothing at all. Let's remember the context of this from James chapter five. This was our main passage from last week. James five nineteen and 20 says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the air of their way will save them from death, save them from a spiritual death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now remember, it's one among you. This is not talking about outsiders. This is talking about Christians, saved ones, the saints, the church members, the church people, those people. If one of those should wander from the truth, we need to bring them back. It'll cover over a multitude of sins. And so today we're gonna talk about how. How do we do this exactly? How does God call us to intervene in each other's lives? How is this done properly? How do we confront and intervene in the way that God desires? 
There's many passages we could look at in Scripture. It actually starts back in the Old Testament. There's confrontations and all the way into the to New Testament. There's interventions. And we're going to be, uh, actually, our main focus today is going to be a passage in Matthew chapter 18 from Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, and how he says we're supposed to do this. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there to Matthew's Gospel, first book of the New Testament, chapter 18. And if you don't have your Bible this morning, you're welcome to grab the one around you, or you can get on your phone or your tablet, uh, download the Oakwood app if you haven't already, and go to sermon notes, and all the sermon notes, and all the scriptures, and everything will be there for you. And I hope that you're encouraged through this, because now we're going to talk about what does this look like exactly, how do we need to do this, how do we function biblically, how do we honor God in all of this, Matthew 18, beginning with verse 15. And in the red letters, the words of the very Son of God, it says this. If your brother or sister, remember brother or sister in the Lord, it's for Christians. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. And we could stop right there. That's uncomfortable, right? Hey, Brother Bob, you're you're going the wrong direction. You're at fault here. Foul. (laughs) That that, that automatically seems to be kind of... Um, anti-cultural, right? We're, we're in this society that's tolerate everything, mind your own business, it's none of my business. And here the Bible says, hey, go to your brother or sister in the Lord and point out their fault. Say, hey, you're wrong. You're, you're heading the wrong direction. Just between the two of you. Now, this is where the beauty of it begins. Is at first, it's just one-on-one. It's just between the two of you. Look what, look what Jesus says. If they listen to you, you've won them over. It's done. If they repent, if they listen, they receive what you say. Hey, I think you're moving the wrong direction in life. I'm really concerned about this. Then it's like, okay. Yeah, you're right. I, I need to repent. I need to reconsider the direction of my life. I, I haven't, I, you know, Satan was like crouching at my door. I knew I had this old pattern before Christ. And this, this temptation is here to go back to the old way. Okay, yeah, you're right. Beautiful. And that's where it would end. And then we get to verse 16. But if they will not listen, if they will not listen, and that word listen gives us this idea of receiving what you have said and taking it to heart. If they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And you kind of get to the end of 16 there and you're like, what is this, the testimony of two or three witnesses? You're taking a mature brother or sister along with you. And this is where the intervention gets amped up because now, you've, now it's like you know, three on one, right? They feel ganged up on, and that is the purpose. The two or three witnesses part is that they could say, yes, this brother went to him one on one. He asked us to join him. We went to them, and they are not repentant. It's just that they would be able to say, yes, we, we did this together. Um, obviously, this brother or sister in the Lord is not repentant. And so this is the, the, the clarification that's offered by the matter of two or three witnesses. Verse 17, if they still, after the second intervention, if they still refuse to listen, then you tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, to all those people, so we went what? One-on-one, right? Then we went with a small group, two or three other witnesses went with us. And now there's, you know, in our context, seven or 800, right? Now, seven or eight hundred of us are going to the brother or sister saying, hey, we know what's going on. You're, you're moving away from God. This is not leading anywhere good. And if they refuse to listen to the church, then look what it says. And it says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, someone who is outside of the fellowship of the saints. 
Treat them as you would someone who is outside the body of believers, specifically a pagan, someone who wants to worship the things of the world and move their own direction in life, or an IRS agent. Um, now, <laughs> a tax collector. Okay, now you have to understand that the tax collectors in this time, this had a very, very specific application. Because when he's referring to tax collectors, he's talking about Jews who are working for Rome. And Rome was the ones occupying the Jews at that time. And so it was almost like being a traitor to be a tax collector. So he's like, treat them as an ultimately lost sinner pagan person or a traitor and take them out. Verse 18, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. A lot of people read that like, what does that mean exactly? Well, the word bind is, is, is a way of saying to forbid. What you forbid on earth, if you're echoing as a God's church and as a Christian, if you're echoing what the scripture is saying and what God desires, whatever you bind, whatever you forbid on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose, whatever you permit or allow on earth will be allowed in heaven. And so he's just clarifying that, that the church, God's church, has the authority to declare what is forbidden and what is permitted. That's what it's saying. Verse 19. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, a lot of people read verse 19. They love to take that one out of context. You know, we talk about context, what scripture means, what its intentions are sometimes. A lot of people read that verse and say, hey, you ask for anything. If you get your buddy to ask for BMWs for you and him, God, do you have two come together and ask for a BMW? No. What's the context here? We just read the verses before it. It's talking about discipline. It's talking about intervention. It's talking about keeping the purity of God's church. It's something very specific here. And so specifically to that situation, again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And it gives us this idea that there's this process of prayer as you go through all of this process. That we are praying for this brother or sister to reconcile. We're praying that they would turn back to God. We're praying that they would leave their life of sin. And that they wouldn't continue on this path of straying or wandering or what we learned last week about being off course. Falling out of orbit. Falling out of their Christian orbit. Verse 20. For where two or three gathered in my name, there I am with them. And again, it's talking about the context of this situation. Again, this is one of those that's taken out of scripture that we like to say sometimes, you know, hey, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am amongst them. Okay, Jesus is with you when two or three are gathered. If you're in the hospital alone, praying to God, Jesus is with you then. What he's specifically speaking about in this situation, in this context, is where two or three of you are gathered on this mission, trying to reconcile a brother, it's uncomfortable, you wanna quit, now they seem like they hate you, even though you did the most loving thing you've probably ever done for them. They're, they're mad at you and they're bad-mouthing you on Facebook, whatever. Hey, I want you to know I'm with you in this. Why would Jesus say that? Because he's asking us to do it. <laughs> I don't think this is something we, in human nature we're like, hey, I want to intervene. You know, I want to go in people's lives and be like, hey, you're doing, you're at fault. You know, we don't want to do that. That's not an eightness, but we're commanded to do it in scripture. And the whole purpose of it is that people would walk closely with God, that people would engage and stay in the process of sanctification and becoming more like Christ Jesus, and 
that the purity and witness of God's church, the testimony of the church, would not be tainted by a bunch of people that don't live like they're Christians. They live just like the world and just like the culture would have them to live. How, then, are we to intervene in a way that honors God? We know that we're called in James 5 and other passages to do this, but how do we do it in a way that honors God? Let me just summarize what we just read this morning in a few statements. First one is this. We start an intervention. We start by keeping the matter brother to brother one-on-one. That's where it starts. That's what it's talking about there in verse 15. Is we're going to them one-on-one, brother to brother. Remember what it says in Galatians 6.1. We talked about this last week. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. The application of Galatians 6.1 is actually magnified through Matthew 18.15-20 this morning. I love the word uh, there in Galatians 6.1 where it says, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. That word restore is actually a medical term in the Greek, and it means to set a broken bone. Okay, that's what it's like to restore someone. Because if they're sinning against God, they're running away from God, they're what? They're broke, right? They're messed up, and they need help. And God is calling us to be the doctors and the nurses that come in and help set that brokenness on a path toward healing and redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. Beautiful illustration. But why, in verse 15, does it specifically say that it's supposed to be one-on-one? I have several theories on this. I think that it's best to keep the fewest number of people knowing about the situation. Because of the brokenness, because of maybe perhaps the shock of it, that it's best that the less number of people be involved as possible. And that's why Jesus starts there by saying, if you see someone straying, if you see someone in sinning, sinning, and you see someone wandering from the truth, then you need to go to that person one on one. The less people involved, the better. Why? Because when you get others involved, there's this temptation to gossip, right? Oh, Brother Bob did this, and you go decide to share. Maybe you're doing it biblically. Maybe you go to Brother Bob. Bob says, I ain't listening to you. So you're going to gather two or three others, right? Two or three others. Hey, we all see this pattern in your life, Bob. This is not going to lead to anything, anything good. You have got to, you've got to repent. You've got to come back to God. You're moving away from him. This is going to cause pain. You're not pleasing the Lord right now. You need to walk this way, walk this path. And when you get two or three people, they have this tendency to be like, man, I cannot believe what Bob did. And they tell their wife, and very innocently. Then their wife posts it on Facebook. No, they didn't post it on Facebook. No, she just tells one person, right? Because it's a burden. It's a burden. It's like, guys, you know what Bob's into? I had no idea he had to struggle with this. Can you believe it? I would have never thought their marriage was on the rocks. You know, Bob and and Cindy Lou, who, I mean, they're so... And they're really struggling and it's shocking. And sometimes that burden to carry is something that I've got to share this with another human and we dump it. And I think that's why Jesus says, hey, the beauty of this working is one-on-one. But then there's verse 16, which leads us to the second thing this morning. Ask for help from mature believers when necessary. When step one, one one-to-one doesn't work, now we're going to ask some mature believers that don't have a propensity to gossip, 
that, that will actually be helpful, that maybe have some knowledge of the word, the knowledge of the way that God wants them to live their lives, someone who is strong in prayer, be lifting them up in prayer, then now this small group of us is going to address this issue. Ask for help from other mature believers when necessary. That's what it's talking about in verse 16. Now, this is a more traditional view of what we would call an intervention. If someone's having an intervention, you usually don't think of it as one-to-one. You usually think, hey, get this group together. We're going to go, you know, we're going to have an intervention and sit them down. He's going to listen to all of us. And there is, there is some power when you bring the pack of people together, right? I always make a funny joke about parenting. You know, in parenting and you have an only child, it's great. Double team, right? Two-on-one, Right? Then you get into parenting and then you have two kids and now it's a man-to-man, okay? You're in a man-to-man defense now. And when you have three or more, you're in the zone, okay? And good luck. Should be chasing those kids around. You are outnumbered in God's house, right? I mean, so, but it's kind of the same thing here. There's some power in the numbers. When the pack of mature Christians comes, there's what? There's more voices at the table. There's more intentional thoughts. There's more prayer. There's maybe more knowledge. There's more wisdom. And there's more what? There's more accountability for them. That, hey, all three or four of us, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be watching you. Or we're we're going to be praying for you. Please turn. We all see this pattern in your life. Please turn back to God. And then we get to the third thing this morning. If repentance and restoration doesn't happen, then you get the church involved. The word church there in verse 17 is the word ecclesia. It literally means the gathering of the saints. That would be the church. Shame on the church that shares someone's sins with the entire church. Except that the Bible says to do that. In fact, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, says to do that. Did you notice that there's some steps before this, though? The steps were one-on-one with a small group. Now we're going to the church. So now instead of one person calling them to repentance or three or four people calling to them repentance, now we have seven or 800 people calling them to repentance. Now look what it says in verse 17. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church... So everybody, when you, when you saw the person, it's like, hey, man, please turn back to God. Please, you know, we're praying for you. Man, I, I, I know, I know the, what you're tempted with right now, and we're praying for you. We're lifting you up. Please turn back to God. Then it says at the end of 17, if they don't respond, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Which leads us to number four. That we have to keep the witness and the testimony of God's church powerful and effective. Why? Because we are in the soul-winning business. And why? We are winning people out of a sinful, lost life and into walking in what? Newness of life. And when they're walking in that newness of life, it's very confusing for them to see Christians walking, you know, Christians, you know, Christ followers not following Christ. Straying and wandering and going their own way. And so it's very important. That's why Jesus says it with such strong language here in verse 17. That we keep the witness and the testimony of God's church powerful and effective. And if they don't respond even to the church holding them accountable, then we're to treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. And I believe there's this principle at work here, and it's found in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, there's a verse that says, Even a little bit of yeast leavens the whole lump of dough. That even just a little bit 
of yeast can leaven the whole lump of dough. Now you think about that. A little bit of sin in the camp can actually affect the whole camp. Sometimes in, I think, supernatural, judgmental ways from the Lord himself, and sometimes just in tangible ways. That if so-and-so is allowed to continue this path and still be an active member of God's church, then everyone else says, hey, what's the difference? I can do the same thing. The next thing you know, whatever sin was being committed, everyone's doing it. Maybe they were stealing money. You know, everybody's like, well, hey, he's stealing money. I need money. I'll steal some money. I'll embezzle or I'll do this or I'll do that. And when it's not addressed, it does not keep the witness and the testimony of God's church, the sole winning family of God, it negates its effectiveness because we look and we function and maybe we act just like the world. But when you remove sin in the camp and you do what God instructs, it protects God's church. It protects the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the fourth thing. Fifth thing this morning. Always confront with both truth and love. Pray for repentance and a return to God. Always confront with both truth and love. Pray for repentance and return to God. That's really what it's talking about. That's a summation of verses 18 and 19. The whole binding and the loosing and, and the whole part about if, you, if two of you pray for this in my name, I will answer your, your prayers. Ephesians 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 15 says this. Instead, it says, speaking the truth in love, what's going to happen when we speak the truth in love to one another in the body of Christ? We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. If you go back to the original language in Ephesians 4.15, it would say, read like this. Instead, truthing in love, we will grow up. Truthing in love. We are called by God to speak the truth, but to do it in a loving way. This is more of the very tangible how. How do we intervene in each other's lives? We speak the truth in love. Because when we are immature in our faith, we try to sometimes shield the truth because we think it might hurt someone. And you may say, well, that's just the most loving thing I can do as a Christian. I want to hurt feelings. Nowhere in this passage, though, does it take into, consider, into consideration anyone's feelings. And sometimes I find that as Christians, we think, well, that's the nice thing to do. I'm supposed to be nice. Christians are nice. Come on. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, kindness. I'm being more kind if I don't speak the truth in love. But then you're not doing what Ephesians 4.15 is saying. When we confront each other, we're going to speak the truth. But we do it from a place of love. And we're not going to try to shield the truth because it might hurt someone. I think it is the ultimate mark of maturity when we are able to share truth with fellow Christians. I think you are more mature if you can speak the truth to fellow believers. When you can stand on the word of Scripture and say, hey, God said it. I believe it, and that settles it. And it should settle it for everyone. But when we're immature in the faith, we don't want to do that sometimes. Do you remember what Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6 says? One of the great Proverbs 
Proverbs 27, 6 says, The wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Now, would you rather have me, like, hit you, or would you rather have me, like, kiss you? Right? I mean, you want to get hurt, or do you want to get helped, right? And so we would say, well, duh, if I had my choice between receiving a whooping, you know, think about this in the child-parent uh, context. Would you want your mom and dad to spank you, or would you want them to kiss you? It's like, yeah, I'd rather have a kiss than a spank. I'd rather have a, than any kind of discipline for that matter. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. Why? Because they have your best interests at heart. Why? Because they really love you. I mean, they know I cannot allow you to live your life this way because it's going to lead to nothing good in your life. But an enemy multiplies kisses. Yeah, I think that's taken the easy way out. We always confront with both truth and love. Pray for repentance and return to God. And the sixth thing, the last thing this morning, understand that God is with us in these situations. Jesus is with us in these situations. Look at verse 20. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. When you go to do the deed that I'm calling you to do, when you go to confront, when you go to intervene in this situation, and it's so sticky, it's so messy, it involves so many people, and you just, wow, I don't want to have anything to do with this. God, why do I even know about this? How did I stumble into this situation where I know this now? I don't even want to know this. And yet God calls us to intervene. But yet Jesus says, you know what, I'm with you. I know you're doing this for me. I know you're doing it for my kingdom. I know you're only doing it probably because I'm asking you to do it. And so when two or three gather in my name to pray for this person, when two or three gather in my name to go confront this situation, these circumstances, I want you to know, hey, I'm with you. I'll be with you every time that you have to do this in my name. It matters to God. He ordains and supernaturally works through our obedience. Do you understand that? Like our obedience in doing this is a doorway. It's a pathway. We are opening a door, a rescue to someone who is moving away from God. You never know what God's doing in the background in these situations. And you think, but it's so hard because I tried one-on-one and they won't even talk to me anymore. And I've got to involve two or three friends now. We're going to go talk. I mean, this is not going anywhere good. Jesus says, hey, I'm with you. I'm with you. And when God impresses on your heart that you're to intervene in someone's life, I can imagine what it's like. In fact, I don't even have to imagine it because I've walked it out. I've done it. I've done it several times. Sometimes it makes you want to scream like a child, you know, when you <laughs> have to do it. Just like, ah! But it's one of those situations that you're doing what God calls you to do. And I know what it's like. You're in the lobby, right? It's after church service and you see him or her and you're like, oh, Eric just read that passage today. No, God, no, no, no. You start sweating, okay? Because that's what happens when you get nervous, right? When you're working for the Lord, you start sweating. 
It's like Holy Spirit sweat or something, you know? And, and you start sweating, your palms get, you know, you don't even want to shake their hand because it'll just slip right out of your hand. I mean, your palms are sweaty and you're nervous and you, you don't know if you have the right words and you're coming up with a thousand excuses why I've got to go to lunch, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. I've, you know, someone else saw it too, so they could go to them. Um, you know, that would be more powerful because they're a better speaker than I am and they know more about scripture. And so I, I, you know, God's not really calling me to do this, you know, and we come up and we're trying to make all these excuses. And then we go to them and we say, hey, brother, can we talk? We take them down a hallway or take them into a room and just, we share our heart, right? Really concerned about you. I know what you're doing right now. And I feel like God wants me to call you to repentance, that you would leave this path that you're on and that you would come back to him. And know that even in that time when there's two of you gathered in his name doing what he's asking you to do, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm with you even in that moment when you're sweating profusely and you don't want to do it and everything in you says, don't say a thing. Mind your own business. Just tolerate it like we tolerate everything else. That's the highest value in the culture today, toleration. When you do it in that moment, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm with you. I'm with you. My spirit's gonna help give you the words. And you're gonna, you're gonna do Ephesians 4.15 here. You're gonna truth and love. You're gonna truth and love to this person. Fact is this. Truth without love is brutality. If you speak truth with no love, I mean, it feels like passing judgment on someone, right? Truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. And hypocrisy destroys the witness and the testimony and the power of the changed life that's to be modeled within God's church. These people that used to be one way, and they met Jesus, and now they're walking in newness of life. They're different. They don't do that anymore. Jesus has saved them from their life of sin. And I know you're thinking, wow, that's great if it works. But what if they don't repent? What if they don't receive what I have to say? What if they don't make a turn back to God? If you look in the Gospels and you see how Jesus handled these situations, he did something very interesting. There's many times recorded in all of the Gospels where Jesus was teaching to a crowd of people. And a lot of times he was giving a hard teaching. You know, it was about the kingdom of God. He was talking to the disciples, but he had this crowd overhearing him. He was talking about the newness of life. He was talking about God's law. He was talking about how we are supposed to live. And sometimes he would give a really hard teaching and Jesus would end it with this phrase. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I read that for years. I read that in Bible college. Didn't think anything about it. I just thought it's kind of weird. You know, I'd be like, amen. You know, that's how I'd end it, you know. But Jesus is always like, you know, hear this teaching and you should do this, you should do this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And it was kind of like his mic drop line and then you just go on and then and Jesus went to the next village and began teaching these people. And 
It's like, what did that mean? Think about it. What Jesus was saying when he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He was saying, some of you get it and some of you don't. Some of you are going to hear this and you're going to love me so much, you're going to feel cut to the heart. You're going to repent. And you're going to come running back to me and running back to my arms. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But some of you are so stubborn. Some of you have strayed so far, it's going to take more than that to get your attention. It's just going to keep moving up the levels here in Matthew 18. But that's how Jesus would handle it. The great news about Christ is that he never gives up on us, though. He's ready to take you back whenever that moment comes. Arms open wide. And I wonder, after you do a hard teaching like this, how would God's church potentially be different if we actually applied this teaching? Would we look more like the bride of Christ, pure and blameless, Scripture says, on the day of Christ Jesus? Would, would our fellowship and the kind of relationships we have with one another here be characterized by truth and love? Loving each other so much that we won't allow each other to fall out of orbit. That we would actually see the difference that we can make in the body of Christ. And I also wonder this on the tangible side of this whole thing. How much pain and heartache and stress and anxiety and worry might it save brothers and sisters in the body of Christ if we would just say something and intervene? That's what God's calling us to do. And you may say, well, what's God's interest in this whole thing? God is a God of intervention. The greatest intervention of all time is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming into the world. God intervened in such an awesome and miraculous way. As we prepare to take communion this morning, I want us to celebrate that and be mindful of that as we take communion this morning. As we take this bread that represents Jesus' body and as we take this cup that represents his blood, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And his sacrifice was the greatest intervention of all time. God looked at the world and said, broke, wrong, strain. Do you remember the intertestamental period, big word for the time between Malachi and Matthew? 400 years of silence from the prophets. 400 years of just letting the world go. I feel like it's 400 years of God stepping back and saying, okay, have it your way. The pattern we'd seen in the Old Testament was the Israelites, his chosen people, the most blessed people on the face of the earth, walking with God and walking away from God and walking with God and walking away from God and walking with God and walking away from God. And you can see it in Genesis all the way through Malachi. And then you get into this quiet period. And then we get what it talks about in Ephesians 2, where you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then in verse 4 it says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, sent his son, Jesus. 
And he just didn't send Jesus to teach us the way to live our lives. He didn't send Jesus to show us a better way of life while we still exist on earth. It wasn't just about that for Jesus. Jesus was sent, and he didn't just intervene there. He intervened by actually taking a sacrifice. He sacrificed for us on the cross of Calvary. Ultimately paid the price for our sins so that he could save us from spiritual death and that we could walk in newness of life. The greatest intervention of all time. God did it for us. He models it for us. And he asks us to do this within his family for one another. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for the opportunity we have to commune with you right now. I thank you for your word. Know it challenges us to the core, Lord. It it's rem, it's rem, reminds us, just like the last verse in, in verse 20 today of our passage, that Jesus is with us. Jesus said, even in the Great Commission, lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. God, I pray that we can be a church that is the pure and blameless bride of Christ. Lord, that we can intervene in one another's lives because we love each other so much. We don't want to see each other hurt. We don't want to see each other cause pain. We don't want to see each other negate evangelism. So God, as we take communion together this morning, as we take these emblems, God, I'm reminded that this is for all Christians everywhere. If you have given your life to Jesus Christ, if you call him Savior and Lord, then you are invited around the Lord's table to partake in the Lord's Supper. And as we do this, we look into the face of our Savior, the resurrected Christ. We take these emblems and remember his sacrifice, the greatest intervention of all time. God, I pray you just give us the courage and the strength and the faith to walk out these scriptures for you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to just pause and reflect on Christ's sacrifice for the next few minutes.